This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Approaching the 50th anniversary window for Vatican II, it seemed timely and appropriate to former Burke board member Gerard Mannion, now at Georgetown University, and me, for a lectureship like the Burke to have a scholar of the first rank assess the impact of this momentous event. What Charles de Gaulle, the leader of post-war World War II France, famously called the most important event, not just religious event, of the 20th century. Knowing something about his prior and ongoing work, our first choice was this evening's speaker. And while it took some time to make these arrangements, anticipation only makes his presentation this evening that much sweeter. So without further ado, Professor Richard Gillarde. Uh, as uh, many of you know, the uh, church, the Catholic Church, is in the midst of uh, year, several year-long uh, celebration of the anniversary of the Second Vatican Council. It began, of course, the uh, anniversaries began on October 11th, 2012, and they'll come to their conclusion in 2015. For many of us who try and understand the significance of the Second Vatican Council, we find ourselves struck between two different responses. The first is a sense of gratitude for what the Council has contributed to the life of the Church over the last five decades. The second is an experience of frustration that more has not happened, that the church has not done a better job of implementing so much of what seemed promising about the council. My own interest is in trying to make sense of that ambiguity, a sense of gratitude and a sense of frustration. The study of the Second Vatican Council has flourished over the last four decades important historical studies that try to understand the, the uh, theological and sociological currents leading up to the Council have been very important for our understanding the Council. There's been tremendous exegetical work on the contributions of particular documents and understanding the significance of key phrases like the hierarchy of truths or the subsistent passage in which the dogmatic constitution on the church tries to articulate more carefully the relationship between the Catholic Church and other Christian churches. But what our church is still working toward, it seems to me, is a more synthetic interpretation of the Council. Because in many ways, the Second Vatican Council represents now, represented at its close, a fundamentally unfinished project. If we're to understand where the church needs to go in the future, in terms of finishing or completing that project, we need to read or to interpret the Council uh, in its historical context. A metaphor that I would like to draw on, it's not my own, it's a metaphor that I, I've uh, taken from uh, the German theologian Hermann Pottmeier, offers, I think, a helpful um, kind of heuristic tool for making sense of both the gains that we've experienced from the Council and the sense of incompletion. Professor Potmeyer, at the end of a very important book that he had written on the papacy, 
suggested that we must think of the Second Vatican Council as an unfinished building site. And he invoked an extended metaphor from the 16th century, namely the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica. You see, the original basilica at St. Peter's had been built during the Constantinian era. And by the beginning of the, well, the end of the 15th century, that Constantinian basilica had become increasingly uh, inadequate to the demands placed upon it. It had become dilapidated, run down. And a series of popes in the 16th century began the process of rebuilding St. Peter's. The difficulty, Professor Potmeyer points out, is that they were tasked with rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica while elements of the old basilica were still standing. The old Constantinian Basilica, in fact, would not be completely leveled until the very end of the 16th century. Professor Popmeyer says that provides an interesting metaphor for what the Second Vatican Council was about. For it was, in fact, trying to offer a new edifice, a new form of the church, while elements of the old form were in many ways still standing and exerting an influence on the life of the church. So I'd like to use this metaphor as a way of thinking about the council's gains, but also the work that still is left to be done. Because I'm going to suggest to you that what the bishops were doing at Vatican II was both recognizing that there was an older basilica, if you will, an older ecclesiological edifice, a, a form of the church, which had a long history, but which was increasingly viewed as inadequate to the needs of the church at the time. The council will try to construct a new ecclesiological form, but will struggle with the fact that the remnants of the old form, much like that Constantinian basilica, were still exerting an influence. So to make sense of this, I want to start with the old edifice what I'll refer to as the herocratic form or a herocratic understanding of the church. And I take that term herocratic from one of the magisterial histories of ecclesiology by the late French Dominican theologian Yves Congar, who contended that somewhere around the 11th century we begin to see the rise of what he calls a herocratic ecclesiology. That is a theology of the church that focuses almost exclusively on its hierarchical structure. The French Benedictine theologian has another term for this. He refers to it as the Gregorian form of the church. Again, taking its name from Pope Gregory VII, who set about a fundamental ecclesial reform of the church in the 11th century. Whether we refer to it as the Herocratic form or the Gregorian form, my argument will be that on the eve of Vatican II, there was a fundamental um, imaginative construct for thinking about the church that was shaping Catholicism, but was also increasingly viewed as problematic. My suggestion this evening is that we can think about that old form that the council was reacting to in terms of four pillars. All right. So these are the characteristics of the dominant form of the Catholic Church on the eve of Vatican II. The first pillar we might refer to as a propositional theory of divine revelation. Catholic Christianity, of course, believes, as all Christians believe, 
that we as a church are constituted by divine action. That God has revealed God's self to us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that the church comes into existence in some way as a response to that revelation. However, over time, that theology of revelation went through a number of different transmutations. And somewhere around the uh, Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, we begin to see what Lafont will call an illuminationist theology of revelation. That is a theology of revelation that imagines the divine truth comes to the church from above and is simply received by members of the church. That is, we add nothing to it. So truth is received from above and increasingly the various doctrinal formulations of that revelation are identified with revelation itself. That is, we cease to make a distinction between doctrinal formulations and revelation. Doctrine comes to equal revelation. In such a view, the church adds little, but simply to receive what God has given to it. And in the Middle Ages, as the church is understood much more as a hierarchy, uh, conceived in a, a, a quasi-pyramidal fashion, we get something like this, in which divine power and divine truth are given to the papacy, which has the potestas plenitudo, uh, the plenitudo potestatis, the fullness of power, and that power and truth are then mediated from the pope through the bishops and the lower clergy to the laity, whose sole responsibility it is to passively receive and give an assent to that which, been, which has been given it to it by church leaders. We might speak of this hierocratic view of divine revelation as sort of spiritual Reaganomics. Huh? <laughs> A reference that doesn't work for my undergraduate students, I'm sorry to tell you. So this propositional theology of revelation. A theology of revelation in which truth comes to us from above is handed on to us by the hierarchy in which the laity have nothing to do but to passively receive that truth and in which that truth is understood as equivalent to or equated with propositional statements, doctrines, and dogmas that must simply be memorized or mastered. That becomes the first pillar of this hierocratic form of the church that I believe the council was reacting to. The second pillar is what we might speak of as the rise of an imperial papacy. From the very beginning of Christianity, there is a recognition, certainly by the mid-second century, that the Church of Rome shared a particular prestige because the Church of Rome was viewed as the church of not one but two apostles. Both Peter and Paul were known to have been martyred in Rome. And so Rome, the church of Peter and Paul, was called from the very beginning the church of most excellent origins. And there was a certain primacy given to that local church, such that when there were disputes from among the other churches, the testimony to the apostolic faith in the church of Rome was often considered decisive. And it was only because the church of Rome had a certain primacy that over time... The Bishop of Rome was conceived as having a certain primacy. But this primacy was always exercised within an understanding of the church as a communion of churches. 
The idea that the Pope's authority comes by virtue of being the successor of Peter actually emerges centuries after this more ancient insight that the Pope's authority derives from the fact that he's the bishop of one local church, the church of Peter and Paul. And so while in the beginnings there was a Petrine ministry, a particular authority given to the Church of Rome and its bishop, largely to mediate disputes among other local churches, over the second half of the first millennium and into the first centuries of the second millennium, we begin to see a series of transformations in the form that the papacy takes. And I can't go into that right now. There'd be a whole course just on the history of the papacy. Suffice it to say that by the time we get to the late Middle Ages, the papacy has been dramatically transformed. No longer do we think of the Pope as simply one bishop among a college of bishops, a bishop of a local church. Now, increasingly, we see the Pope modeled after the Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope is largely an imperial, or if you will, a monarchical figure. And that increasingly imperial understanding of the papacy would be carried forward all the way to the eve of the Second Vatican Council, such that when we think of the last pope before Vatican II, Pope Pius XII, right, we have the practice which had emerged in the 11th century of a coronation of popes, clear imperial trapping. The idea of a pope carried on the Sidia gestatoria, right? A papal throne carried on the shoulders of 12 footmen. These imperial trappings would not be abandoned until the decades after the Second Vatican Council. So the second pillar in this hierocratic form of the church, this ecclesial edifice to which the council was responding, was an imperial papacy or a monarchial papacy. The third pillar of the hierocratic form is what we might speak of as a sacral priesthood. Now, I emphasize the sacral character because I'm not denying the fact that in the Catholic Church, there's a commitment to the need for a ministerial priesthood. But again, over the history of the church, we see a series of transpositions that gradually transform the priesthood. In a series of moves, a few of which I can only briefly outline. We can talk about any of these, of course, during the, the question and answer period. The first of these, I suspect, in many ways, has to do with um, the uh, increased association with celibacy and the priesthood. There are a number of different theological uh, logics associated with celibacy. One, of course, comes from the gospel, uh, the Matthean Logion, to become a eunuch for the kingdom and was associated with those called to eremitic life or monastic life. But there was a second trajectory of celibacy that was associated with a particular understanding of the Eucharist as sacrifice and the need for the priest to be, maintain a kind of ritual purity. It was a notion of purity drawn largely from the Levitical priesthood of the Hebrew scriptures. And so the association of celibacy with the priesthood is one of the first of several moves that increasingly sacralize the priesthood and separate the ministerial priesthood from the rest of believers. A second significant move takes place in the 9th to the 12th centuries. For much of the first millennium of Catholicism, excuse me, or of Christianity, the theology of the Eucharist was characterized by a twofold commitment. We might speak of this as a commitment to the real presence, 
that in consuming the consecrated bread and wine, one was drawn into a genuine communion with Christ, that those elements were in some ways transformed. But that nascent doctrine of what we might call Eucharistic real presence, long before there's any language of transubstantiation, was inseparable from a conviction that in the celebration of the Eucharistic liturgy, it is not only the Eucharistic elements that are transformed, but the community gathered at the altar. That it was impossible to separate bread and wine transformed from the community gathered transformed. And so in one of his most famous Eucharistic sermons, St. Augustine of Hippo spoke to those who had just received the Eucharist for the first time and said to them, since you are the body of Christ, it is your mystery that is placed on the Lord's table. It is your mystery that you receive. So be what you see and receive what you are. For much of the first thousand years of Christianity, we couldn't sell it, separate the transformation of the elements from the transformation of the people. That begins to change in the 9th to the 11th centuries as a series of debates about what it means to speak of the transformation of those Eucharistic elements leads the other dimension of the Eucharist, the transformation of the gathered community, receding more and more into the background. And with that change comes a change in the priesthood. No longer is the priest the one who presides over the Eucharistic liturgy in which both elements and people are transformed. More and more the priesthood is understood as being about the conferral of sacramental powers that allow for the confecting of the Eucharist and the absolution of sins apart from any pastoral leadership of the community. Sacramental power rather than pastoral leadership, becomes a defining priesthood uh, feature of the priesthood. We could mark a number of other moves, but I'll simply highlight one more. One that occurs in the 17th century, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation with its denunciation of a series of clerical abuses. And the Council of Trent in the 16th century that creates the seminary system, largely as a way of responding to that corruption. In the 17th century, a series of French religious orders committed to the formation of priests brings to, uh, uh, into form a distinctive spirituality of the priesthood, one that's intended to correct clerical corruption, but does so by emphasizing the singular holiness of the priest. And now we have moving to the center of a theology of the priesthood, the notion that the priest by ordination becomes an alter Christus another Christ. The idea that this solitary individual is profoundly transformed into Christ, not in some active or relational way, but in a solitary and ontological transformation. All of these moves by degree bring into existence a sacral priesthood dramatically separated, removed from the life of the church and any kind of comprehensive theology of ministry. The last pillar to be considered is what we might speak of as a confrontational attitude toward the world. An attitude toward the world that probably begins to change in uh, the 15th and 16th centuries with the rise of modern science and an emerging antagonism between church and science and continues with the antagonism uh, created by the Protestant Reformation, the rise of the age of reason, 
a series of perceived attacks on the integrity and authority of the Catholic Church that over a period of centuries uh, inculcates into Catholicism a reflex defensive posture in which the church adopts a kind of siege mentality, a fundamental suspicion of everything that happens outside its borders. These four pillars might be conceived as holding together a particular ecclesiological form that some of us in this room may in fact recall from the church on the eve of the council. Indeed, I would argue that one of the things that inhibits the completion of the project of the Second Vatican Council is that some of these pillars, much like the ruins of the Constantinian Basilica, are still standing today and continue to exert an influence on the church. The council attempts to articulate, to, to give expression to a new form of the church, drawing significant elements from the old form, to be sure, but in service of a new ecclesiological edifice more in tune with the needs of the church of the modern age. And it, too, has some characteristic pillars, particular teachings that were ripe with promise, but again, according to Professor Potmeyer, the difficulty is that while the council was able to build the pillars of a new edifice, it was not able to construct a dome that might pull those various pillars together into a unified whole. Indeed, I dare to harbor the hope that it is under the pontificate of Pope Francis that we may finally have an opportunity to construct a dome that draws together the fundamental contributions of the council in service of a new and compelling vision of the church adequate to the needs of the third millennium. A brief review, very brief summary of some of these pillars will have to suffice before I talk a little bit in my last section about where I think we need to go to complete this project. The first pillar that we can speak of, and you'll see how these are in some ways counterposed to the pillars of the hierocratic form of the church. Instead of a propositional theology of revelation, the Second Vatican Council offered us instead a personalist and Trinitarian theology of revelation. Here, revelation is not simply the conferral of divine truth from above, which we passively receive. Revelation in this case is not even primarily a set of doctrines or truths to be memorized and wielded in theological combat. Rather, this theology of Revelation offered in the beginning of Dei Verbum, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, suggests that God wishes to share God's self with us. The revelation is primarily an event of divine self-communication in which what God wishes is to enter into relationship with humanity, to speak a definitive word of love in the person of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Doctrine will continue to play an important role in the life of the church, but the Second Vatican Council places doctrine in a more constructive position, where doctrine exists not as the equivalent of revelation, but as a way of mediating fundamental dimensions of revelation while recognizing that revelation is more 
than doctrine. Revelation is more fundamental than any set of propositional truths. A second pillar in the teaching of the Second Vatican Council is a call not to a confrontational attitude towards the world, not to a finger-wagging from the walls of the church down at those standing outside those walls, but an attitude of dialogical engagement. Pope John XXIII, in his opening address on October 11, 1962, said in that address, for those who survived the six-hour-long liturgy that opened the council, He said, in the past, the church felt it necessary to exercise the medicine of condemnation, vigorously condemning pernicious errors at work in the world. Now, the church sees it opportune to exercise the medicine of mercy. Where in the past it was enough to condemn errors, now we would do better to enter into dialogue and persuade people of the reasons behind our religious convictions. He inaugurated a new vision for the church predicated on the priority of dialogue. And the great church historian John O'Malley says, to study the Second Vatican Council documents is to see in one form or another dialogue on practically every page of the documents. The importance of dialogue would be emphasized anew by John XXIII's successor, Pope Paul VI, who was called on to preside over the final three sessions of the Council. In his very first encyclical, the much-overlooked encyclical, Ecclesiam Suam, Pope Paul VI called for dialogue as central to understanding the life of the church. Indeed, he described this dialogical relationship in terms of concentric circles, that there must be a spirit of dialogue and mutual respect within the church, that the church must engage in respectful dialogue with other non-Catholic Christian traditions, but that it must also be willing to, to enter into dialogue with those outside Christianity, other great world religions, and indeed with the world at large. And one of the great contributions of the Second Vatican Council is the way that it emphasized this dialogical spirit. So, for example, in the decree on ecumenism, it reversed 50 years of suspicion about the ecumenical movement. The Catholic Church, for much of the first half of the 20th century, had resolutely resisted participating in the ecumenical movement first established by a variety of Protestant churches. Pope Pius XI, in 1928, issued his encyclical Mortalium Animus, in which he articulated what he felt was the only properly Catholic approach to ecumenism. An understanding of ecumenism that could be fairly characterized this way. We're right, you're wrong, come back to us. (laughs) The crucial move that shifts the Catholic Church's understanding about dialogue with other Christians takes place in the decree in ecumenism in one seemingly modest admission, in which in the decree in ecumenism, the bishops say, when we look back on the grievous divisions that have wounded the Church of Christ, thinking of, for example, the great schism in the 11th century between the Orthodox and Western Church, and then, of course, the series of reformations in the 16th century, The council says when we look at those grievous divisions, 
we must recognize that errors were made on both sides. Now, let's have no illusions about this. In 1963 or 64, if you'd have polled those bishops and said, well, okay, how much of it was their fault and how much was ours? <laughs> it might have been sort of 1090, you know, something like that. But it doesn't matter. Because once you've admitted that errors were made on both sides, ecumenism has to change. It can't just be correcting the other person. There must be an element of self-reflection, of self-criticism. There must be an element of learning from your conversation partners. And so an important change in our relations with other Christian traditions was started. The same kind of dialogical spirit permeated the church's consideration of world religions, in which the first word out of the council's mouth was not condemnation, but an admission of the goodness, of rays of truth that could be found in the other great religious traditions of the world. And of course, in that most audacious of conciliar documents, Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, the council suggested a dialogical attitude towards the world at large, even in its treatment of atheism, where one would have expected the most vigorous of condemnations. The council said, perhaps we Christians must pause and ask ourselves why people consider themselves atheists. And whether, in fact, we're responsible for giving them a defective understanding of God that no longer seemed intellectually credible. The rise of modern atheism, in other words, was not the occasion for condemnation, but for self-reflection. A necessary component of authentic dialogue. A third pillar in the council's halting construction of a new ecclesiological form of the church was not, as many people suggest, the council's teaching on the theology of the laity. Though it is certainly true that the council had many positive things to say about the role of the laity, I am convinced that the council's biggest contribution was not that it said something better about the laity, but that it suggested that being lay or being cleric is not our most fundamental identity. And so in one of its most influential documents, the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumen Gentium, the document went through a number of, of drafts. The first draft was problematic in many ways. This was the draft the bishops were given at the beginning of the council. The title of the first chapter gives you a good sense of the tone of the document. Chapter one was on the nature of the church militant. There was not one, but two chapters on the need for obedience to church authority. Ecumenism was treated under a, a chapter titled Toleration. And the role of religious life was treated in a chapter titled The States of Evangelical Perfection, in which professed religious were called to an elevated form of holiness characterized by the evangelical councils and the laity by the more basic path of the Ten Commandments. That document, fortunately, was sent back to committee for revision. It was dramatically improved between the first and the second sessions. Such the title of the first chapter would now be on the mystery of the church. The title of the second chapter was on, a on the, the hierarchical character of the church. Chapter three was on the church as people of God and especially the laity. Chapter four was no longer on the states of evangelical perfection 
but on the universal call to holiness. But it was a further amendation in that second draft that was most significant for what I want to argue now. Cardinal Leo Sunens, primate of Belgium, one of the most, I think, the most influential bishop at the council. In the intercession between the first and the second session, speaking to the Central Commission on the virtues of this revised draft, said it's a tremendous improvement. But I think we need to make one significant change. Right now you have a chapter on the mystery of the church, then a chapter on the hierarchy, then a chapter on people of God and laity. He says, I propose we take that third chapter on the people of God and the laity and divide it into two. And we take the material on the church as the people of God constituted by faith and baptism, a a church called into existence by God. And we place that in front of the chapter on the hierarchy. For the hierarchy, indeed, he says, have a necessary role in the church. But we have an identity more fundamental than whether we're clergy or laity. Our fundamental Christian identity is that we are baptized followers of Jesus. And in that document, it quotes yet another sermon from the 5th century bishop, St. Augustine of Hippo. This time, it's St. Augustine's Sermon 340, in which he reflects on his own ministry as bishop of the local church of Hippo. And he says to his people, when I am frightened by who I am for you, then I'm consoled by who I am with you. The first is an office, but the second is grace. The first is fraught with danger, but in the second lies my salvation. Augustine did not deny his particular responsibility as bishop of the local church, but he understood that there was a more primal identity than being ordained bishop, and that was that he was a baptized Christian. When the bishops were debating how to talk about the ministerial priesthood, Archbishop Franjo Sepper gave a very important uh, intervention in which he said, we must remind our clergy that while Catholic sacramental theology says that through their ordination, they receive the distinctive sacramental character of the priesthood, it does not erase the sacramental character of their baptism. Priests are still baptized disciples before anything else. Cardinal Sunans, reflecting on this at the council, said, It would be helpful if every pope would recognize that the most important day in their life was not their papal election, but the day of their baptism. And as much as I was grateful that our most recent pope courageously took the name for the first time of Francis, named after one of the humblest of saints, I do still pray for the day when we will elect a pope who says, I can think of no better name than the name I was given at my baptism. And he will continue it, reminding us that popes regularly kept their baptismal name until a pope elected with the unfortunate name Mercurius thought it perhaps inappropriate to keep the name of a pagan god and took a new name, thus encouraging a new tradition in the papacy. Fourth, the fourth pillar the council offers in the construction of a new form of the church is a recovery of the biblical notion of charism. St. Paul's conviction that every Christian, by virtue of their baptism, is given a gift or gifts that play an important role in the building up of the church. 
Pope Pius XII, in the decades before the council, had recovered the biblical image of the church as the mystical body of Christ. An important development. But the Second Vatican Council said the church is not just related to Christ, but it's also related to the Holy Spirit. The church is itself a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in Lumen Gentium Article 4, the bishops wrote, and the Holy Spirit bequeaths to the church a variety of gifts, both hierarchical and charismatic. And what they meant by that was the same Holy Spirit that confers on the church the gift of office the ordained ministries of deacon, presbyter, bishop. That same spirit also gives gifts to all the baptized as well. And that the church is built up not just by its ordained ministers, but by all who have been given gifts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, the council calls for renewed vision of pastoral leadership. In 1869, 1870, Pope Pius IX called for the first ecumenical council in centuries, Vatican I. And that document entertained, I mean that council entertained a draft document that would give a theological account of the whole church. It was uh, comprised of 15 chapters. The bishops thought there were theological problems with that draft. Remember, I'm talking about Vatican I right now in 1869-1870. They sent that document on the church back to committee. And instead, they took just a small section of the original material, the section that dealt with the papacy, and they decided to debate that. And they ultimately promulgated that material on the papacy under the title of the Apostolic Constitution, Pastor Eternus. And before the council could address the larger document, a document that would explain not just the role of the Pope, but the role of the bishops and all God's people in the church, the council was suspended by the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War. And so in place of a theological reflection on the whole church, the next 70 years were marked by an ecclesiology characterized by a dramatic papocentrism. One of the most influential textbooks on the church used in seminaries was written by Domenico Palmieri in 1891. And the English translation of the Latin title goes like this. A treatise on the pontificate with a prolegomenon on the church. Ecclesiology was the papacy with a little introductory commentary on the rest of us. And so the Second Vatican Council emerges recognizing that it doesn't need to undo what Vatican I did, but it needs to remind the church that we are more than just the papacy and that the papacy is not the imperial papacy that it had become. And so the council articulated a theology of collegiality in which the pope teaches in communion with the whole college of bishops that they all together share universal pastoral solicitude for the whole church. At the same time, the council called for bishops to be not just administrators, but pastors of local churches. And it reminded Catholics that bishops are not just vicars of the Pope. They're not just delegates of the Pope. In fact, they're not to be seen as delegates of the Pope at all. Article 26 of Lumen Gentium says... The 
bishop is not a vicar of the pope. He's the vicar of Christ. He's the ordinary pastor for his local church, just as the pope is the ordinary bishop of Rome. Something that Pope Francis reminded us from the Logie of St. Peter's when he introduced himself without ever mentioning the word pope, papacy, or pontificate, but described himself as he does on every occasion as the bishop of Rome. The council also addressed the ministry of the priest presbyter. And where it become common since the 17th century to speak of the priest as an alter Christus, another Christ, the council chose not to use that language. Indeed, in its decree on priestly ministry and life, first composed in Latin, as all of the texts, save for the one on the pastoral constitution and the church in the modern world, it was composed in Latin. And in the composition of that Latin text, this decree on the priesthood, the bishops made an audacious decision. They would not use the Latin word most customary for priest, sacerdos, but instead would use the term presbyter, going back to the Greek term presbyteros used in the New Testament to describe ministers, a term that was best understood in the New Testament period as simply an elder in the church. Now, the council wasn't denying that there's a sacerdotal dimension to the priesthood, where sacerdos means suggests the priest who offers up a ritual sacrifice. Clearly, the council continued to accept that the priest presides over the Eucharistic sacrifice, the holy sacrifice of the mass, as it might have been described at the time of the council. But the council wanted to remind us that the priest is not just a sacrament dispenser. He's not just a cultic minister. He's to be a pastoral leader. His ministry should be characterized as much by effective preaching as anything else. And he must always walk closely with the people, eager to recognize their gifts, which he would, as Presbyterum Ordinus 9 says, which he should celebrate with joy, right? emphasizing the need for the priest to place himself at the service of all God's people. The final pillar in this new form of the church is an emphasis on the ecclesial virtue of humility. In the dogmatic constitution on the church Lumen Gentium, which as I suggested to you had, first there were 11 chapters in the preparatory draft, and then the revised draft had four, and then it went through further revisions so that the final form of Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, now has eight chapters. Chapter 7 was supposed to be on eschatology, which is our fancy theological world word for that theology concerned with our final destiny. What Catholics of a certain age might recall as the four last things. Heaven, hell, death, and final judgment. That chapter went through a profound transformation. Where initially it spoke of individual Christians as pilgrims. On a journey, we hope, towards our final destiny with God in heaven. Under the revisions of, again, that French Dominican theologian Yves Congar, that chapter began to articulate a vision not of the individual Christian as a pilgrim, but of the church itself as pilgrim. That is to say, it is not that we are a church of pilgrims, but as chapter 7 suggested, we are a 
pilgrim church. Now, it might be easy to overlook the significance of that until we recognize that from the late from the early 17th century on, it become customary to speak of the church itself as a societas perfecta, a perfect society. And yet here the Second Vatican Council speaks of the church not as a perfect society, but as a pilgrim church. A church which, according to Lumen Gentium 48, will not achieve its perfection until the end of history. An important insight, because if the church is pilgrim, If the church is on a journey, but it hasn't arrived yet, then it must, as the decree on ecumenism, Article 6 reminds us, be in need of reform and renewal. That document says, insofar as the church is a human institution, it will always be in need of reform and renewal. So this emphasis on a pilgrim church reminds us that the church isn't static. It doesn't have it all worked out. It doesn't hover above the vicissitudes of human history. It is itself immersed in history. It grows. It changes. It is subject to criticism and reform. Indeed, in Dave Erbum, Article 8, again, the dogmatic constitution and divine revelation, it speaks of the church not as possessing the truth, Again, many of us of a certain age are accustomed to thinking of the Catholic Church in terms of our having the truth. Maybe a few other people have little bits of it, but we're the only ones that have the whole truth. Instead, Dave Erbum 8 says the church, under the guidance of the Spirit, is in history moving toward the fullness of divine truth. We are, in other words, not possessing it, but living into the truth as something that is always, in some sense, beyond us. And so this humility proper to a pilgrim church is what fuels dialogical engagement. If we don't have it all worked out, if we are imperfect, then we need to grow. We need to learn. We need to listen. We need to be engaged in self-criticism. These six pillars constituted an important beginning in developing a new ecclesiological form, one more adequate to the modern age. But as Professor Potmeyer suggested, the council could not finish the project for a number of reasons, one of which was, again, following the metaphor of the rebuilding of St. Peter's while the old basilica was at least partially still standing. The argument here would be that we have struggled to complete the project of Vatican II because key elements of the older basilica, right? The propositional theology of Revelation in which we use dogma and doctrine to bludgeon people into obedience. An imperial papacy, a sacral priesthood, a confrontational attitude in which we look at the world fundamentally with a a hermeneutic of suspicion about everything going on outside the church walls. The argument here is elements of that basilica are still standing, exerting a shadow over the building project. And so how do we move forward as a church? Well, first of all, We take comfort in the fact that in many ways I think Pope Francis is committed to the completion or at least ongoing work in this building project. And that 
completion or the continued work on the building project of the Second Vatican Council might be thought of in terms of four platform or four planks and a platform for church renewal. The first, and this is one that Pope Francis has given considerable attention to, is the need for us to become a missionary church. Now, by missionary, Pope Francis does not mean the kind of classic notion of sending people off to the mission fields to win souls for Christ. Rather, he's invoking the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and its decree on the missionary life of the church, Ad Gentis, Article 2, in which the council said the church is missionary by its very nature. It is not that Christ instituted a church and then said, here's what you're supposed to go about doing. It's that Christ called disciples to go in mission and then consented to have a church that would enable that mission to happen. The church does not exist for its own sake. The church exists as a launching pad for mission. And this is why Pope Francis speaks of the need for a church with open doors. And by which he means not just that we should have open doors to allow people in, but that we need open doors so that we could move out from that safe center in which we tend to think of the church as a refuge from a hostile world. We need to leave the safety of the world and to go out into the streets and meet people where they are. Which is why Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium uses that evocative, if not particularly theological, image of the church as a field hospital in which we meet people where we are and in which he says it is utterly inappropriate when facing a seriously injured person to ask them about their cholesterol level. We must treat the wounds as they present themselves to us. And it is not just that the church is a hospital, he says, but it must be a field hospital. It must leave that safe refuge and go out into the messiness of the world and treat people where they are. Second, we must become a listening church. Pope Francis emphasized the Council's teaching in Lumen Gentium 12 that every Christian, by virtue of their baptism, is given a supernatural instinct for the faith. The Latin here is sensus fidei. A gift that allows ordinary believers to receive God's word, to penetrate its meaning more profoundly, and to apply it more fully in the life of the church. He suggests, frankly, that bishops and even the Bishop of Rome must do more listening before they begin teaching. And in Evangelii Gaudium, he in fact says, bishops, when they consult people, because let's be honest, I've never met a bishop who didn't think he was consultative. <laughs> I've never met a university president or department chair who didn't think they were consultative either. But Francis reminds us the issue is not consulting people. All leaders consult people. In Evangelii Gaudium, he said, the task is for bishops to consult people they know won't agree with them. The mark of a truly listening church is whether each of us, and not just our bishops, has the courage in humility to listen to those whom we know will disagree with us out of a confidence that God's Spirit may speak through them as well. 
Third, we must become a church of servant leaders. Pope Francis calls for bishops and clergy who have the smell of the sheep on them, who are concerned with what he calls the art of accompaniment, of walking with the people, of being attentive to their needs and alive to their gifts. We need pastoral leaders who are not threatened by the gifts of ordinary Christians, but are eager to call forth those gifts, to empower them in the exercise of those gifts, and to order those gifts for the building up of the church. We need a view of leadership in which the pastor functions more like the symphony conductor who recognizes he need not be the best violinist in the concert hall. He needs to call forth the best of the musicians and allow them to exercise their particular excellencies. His job is not to be the best musician in the room or her job, but to draw together all of these musicians so that they are performing a common score with a shared interpretation. This means that when we call forth leaders to ordained ministry of the church, we must reimagine our system of vocational discernment and formation. For in our current system in the seminary, and I don't mean in any way to, to speak ill of the ordained in the church or seminarians in the church, I had the great privilege of teaching in the seminary for 10 years. But the truth of the matter is our current system is set up to discern impediments to ordination not charisms for leadership. If a young man or not so young man presents himself to a diocesan vocation director and says he has a vocation to the priesthood, we will make sure there are no canonical impediments. Then we will allow him to go to seminary. If he goes to seminary and he passes his courses, barely, showing very little theological promise, but neither any heretical inclinations, if he takes his homiletics practicum and puts people to sleep in his preaching, but does not preach heresy, if he takes his pastoral counseling practicum and shows not one whit of empathy for those who are broken and wounded who come to him, if he visits his confessor weekly, and goes to daily mass and attends benediction in the seminary, we will ordain that man every time, in spite of the fact that he has not shown any charism for pastoral leadership. Now let me be clear. Many of our seminarians and priests do have a charism for pastoral leadership. But that's not why they were ordained. They were ordained because they presented themselves, and we are in a tremendous need for ordained clergy. And they presented no impediments to that ordination. We need a reimagined formation of church leadership. And finally, in this contentious age where the church too often apes the politics of demonization that we see played out on Fox News and MSNBC, we must show another way of disagreeing. We must learn to be a church of holy conversation where our goal is not the politics of demonization where we impute the worst of intentions on those with whom we disagree, but we enter into dialogue with humility, 
aware of the possibility that others may have something to teach us and that our conversation may lead not to our interlocutor's conversion, but to our own conversion. If we take seriously the challenge to become a missionary church, a listening church, a church of servant leaders and a church capable of holy conversation, we stand a chance of finishing the unfinished building project of the Second Vatican Council. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.